You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. I'm going to lead today with a four-word phrase, sheep, sheep without a shepherd, sheep without a shepherd. In reading all four Gospels recently while studying um, the, the narratives of Jesus feeding 5,000, I came across uh, that phrase. And um, as I read all four Gospels, the thing that was significant to me was that when Jesus saw the multitudes, that's how he described them. He described them like sheep without a shepherd, and he came to an important conclusion. And so I'm going to read two of these, and then I have some other verses we want to look at in a minute together. But in Mark 6.34, it says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them Many things. That's the Mark passage. Parallel in Luke chapter 9 verse 11. But when the multitudes knew it, knew that Jesus was there, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And so when you look at the ministry of Jesus and when you consider what he felt like he needed to do for the multitude when he saw them, there were two things. Heal the sick and teach the good news of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He wanted to teach them and he wanted to heal them. And Jesus, some some have estimated that Jesus spent between 70 and 80% of his ministry healing people physically as a demonstration of the gospel. So what did he do to remedy the situation? He healed the sick, and he taught about the kingdom of God. And think about it this way. When Jesus saw them, they looked like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus as the great shepherd in a pastoral dimension, here's what he did. He said, they need counseling. No, he said something else. He said, they need to be healed And they need to understand the kingdom of God in a way that would radically transform their minds. Now, I'm not saying people don't need counseling. I'm not saying anything like that. But I'm saying when Jesus decided he was going to take responsibility for people, he put as a very primary part of pastoring people, making sure they understood the kingdom of God. Making sure they understood the principles, the ideas. But one of the problems I think we have in the United States is we want the benefits of the kingdom and we're not really sure we want Jesus to be the king. But here's what we're going to discover. Jesus actually was willing to pour out all the aspects of what we'll see in a minute of the kingdom of God without anyone's dedication to him. But ultimately, what he was doing in healing the sick teaching them, caring for them, helping their lives change, was introducing to them 
what society can look like when Jesus is the king and you understand what that kingdom's all about. Now, last week we had um, Ray with us and he talked about the message of Jesus. And so look at Luke 4, 43. Uh, Jesus defined his mission. Let's read that together. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. So Jesus identifies his purpose. His primary purpose was to go, in the context of what we're talking about today, preach the kingdom of God in every city. All right, Jesus also taught about the kingdom of God. Let's look at Luke 13, 18 and 19. Let's read this together. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took, put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And then let's look at the, uh, the next verse, Luke eleven twenty. Jesus' miracles, John Mark mentioned miracles, but Jesus' miracles were signs or testimonies that the kingdom he was talking about was already available. Luke 13, 18 and 19. I'm sorry, we just read that. Luke eleven twenty. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has done what? It's come upon you. And then Luke 9, verse 2, he sent them to do two things. What? Preach the kingdom, heal the sick. And Luke 10, 9, Jesus said the kingdom has come near. Luke 10, 9 says, and heal the sick there. And what do you say to them? The kingdom of God has come near you. I've often thought about the kingdom of God. In one place, Jesus says the, the kingdom of God does not come by observation. How many of you have heard that verse from the New Testament? Does not come by observation. Well, if it's near and it doesn't come by observation, what did he mean? I believe what he meant was there are not going to be trumpets. There's not going to be a banner. There's not going to be the grand opening of the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is within you, it's near you, and hear how it comes. It comes by participation. It comes by faith. It comes by believing in what Jesus said and laying your hands on the sick and seeing them recover. Just that one area. Now, when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, one of his very clearest sermons um, we actually find, uh, we find it in Luke 4, but it comes out of Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 verses, I'm going to read probably 1 through 4, but really it goes about 1 through 10 or 12. Isaiah 61 reveals in the Old Testament the benefits of the kingdom of God. And Jesus preached this very clearly when he was alive. Actually, after he preaches it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's what he said. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Good tidings there can be translated gospel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, here's a verse, part of the, part of the verse he left out, which was, and the vengeance of our God. For some reason, he left that out. But then he goes on, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then it says this in verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. Now, I know it's a little bit awkward, but let's, let's say that together. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that when he becomes your king and you understand what he's talking about about this kingdom and when you've been empowered by the spirit of God that was upon him, he will transform you to the degree that you become a rebuilder. Let's say that again. They shall rebuild the old ruins. Listen to this one. They shall raise up the former desolations. Let's say that with me. They. Stop it. They. Let's say they. They. Who's they? They is you. If you're in that kingdom. Now, this is interesting. Um, we talk about the refugees in Iraq. When a refugee in Iraq... There were Kurdish too. It just breaks my heart about all the stuff in the news about the Kurds. Anyway, I can't go there. But when one of those Iraqis from a foreign culture received Jesus, we become part and they become part of a kingdom that supersedes every other kingdom or government or nationality or identity in the world. That's what it is. That was the conflict the early Christians had with Rome. They said, Caesar is Lord. What were the, what were the Christians saying? Jesus is Lord. And one of the things we have lost in our culture, a lot of people want the benefits of a kingdom. They don't want the king. A lot of people want the good tidings to the poor. They want a broken heart healed. They want to be freed from whatever captivity they have. They want their prisons opened. They don't want to be bound anymore. They want to know the acceptance of the Lord. They have some ashes they want to trade for some beauty. They have some mourning. <clears throat> they have some depression. They have some hopelessness that they would like to exchange for the oil of joy. They might have some heaviness that they would rather have the garment of praise in place of. 
And the wonderful thing is Jesus will do that for anybody. I, I had a situation with a guy one time. He had torn all the ligaments in his foot. We talk about how much how much faith does it take to get healed? Who would like to know how much faith it takes to get healed this morning? Wave at me if you'd like to know how much faith it takes to get healed. And so I have a certain thing that happens to me seasonally. I will feel the presence of the Lord suddenly come on me, and I, I will have just this sense of energy and joy, and I don't know what to do with it. And in this case, when it came on me, this was a young man that I loved very dearly. I'd been in the ministry with him. I hugged him, and I blew on him. Now, I know that's not your standard fare, but I hugged him, and I blew on him, and I said, be healed in Jesus' name. And he stood up mocking. Somebody say, don't say that. He was mocking and imitating Ernest Angley by saying, I'm healed, I'm healed. But when he got up on his ankle, guess what? He was completely healed. That morning, he rolled in the front door of the ministry in a wheelchair. Friday morning. Saturday, he went hiking with his three-year-old son on his shoulders up top of a mountain and back. But when he got healed, he turned to me and he expressed his faith level at this amazing height. He said, I never believed anything like this would ever happen to me. That's not much faith, is it? <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. I've been saved 45 years. I've prayed for the sick for 35 of those years. I don't know how it works. I just know Jesus said, go pray for the sick, believe him. But here's the thing. One of the things we've lost in our culture is this allegiance to Jesus. One of these things we have lost in this culture is to see that for the kingdom to operate in our lives the way it's supposed to operate, Jesus got to be more than a savior. He's got to be the Lord. He's got to be the king. There's a given point where your life really will work better when you come into a place of devotion and obedience to Jesus. That's not that popular a message. But you know what? It was the only message he had. Because it was the gospel of the kingdom. And if there's a kingdom, what does that preclude? There's a king. Now, the early believers knew that king so well, they would die for him rather than denigrate their allegiance to him in the form of a false god called Caesar. We need that. We need that to return. Now, one of the things I think about and the portion of this I want to look at a little bit further is Jesus came to console those. What does that word console mean? It means to comfort. Jesus came to comfort those who mourn. And he wants to give them something. He wants to give them beauty. Beauty for ashes. He wants to give them the oil of joy. For mourning. He wants to give them the garment of praise for the heaviness, for their depression. And one of the things I've thought about that is there's an exchange there. 
There's an exchange there. We need to give him one thing in order to receive the other thing. We need to give him one thing to receive the other thing because the idea is both of those things can't fit in the same place. Both of those can't can't fit in the, in the same place. Um, one of the great principles I learned years ago was an idea. Oh, oh, how 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 do you make progress? How many of you ever wondered how how do you make progress as a Christian? Well, this idea about um, you can't disown something until you own it. You own to disown. That was the little phrase we had years ago. Because the law came by Christ Jesus, but what uh, the law came by Moses, pardon me, but what came by Christ Jesus, two things. It says grace and truth. And when you look at that phrase grace and truth, it indicates that without the truth, you have limited access to grace But if you don't have grace in a certain situation, there is a missing element of truth to it. And so one of the things I got to recognize was I couldn't be healed of my bitterness until I dealt with, recognized, and identified that I had it. And see, um, a lot of Christians have um, uh, an ostrich complex. Actually, ostriches are a little bit more intelligent. What do I mean? First of all, what an ostrich complex is. So that they stick their head in the sand. They won't look at their problems because they think they'll go away. Or they don't acknowledge them because they think if I'm a Christian, I shouldn't have them. And so I say they have an ostrich complex. But the truth of the ostrich is he doesn't stick his head in the sand. He sticks his head real low and looks at his enemy to be prepared for whenever his enemy comes. But here's what we need to do. If you have ashes, you need to take them to Jesus. If you have a spirit of heaviness, you can take it to Jesus. I can remember years ago, and I know this is true about many people. Many people deal with shame. Um, They don't like the way they look or it's something they've done. And I was praying one time, and I said to the Lord, Lord, um, I'm, I'm ashamed of this certain situation. And I said, but you don't know what shame feels like because you never did anything to be ashamed of. That's pretty practical comment, isn't it? Jesus never did anything to be ashamed of. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. He sent us. So I said, I have this shame, but I don't, I don't know how to deal with it. And the Lord said, oh, no, no, no. You don't understand. I know what shame feels like. I know what your shame feels like. I know what everybody's shame feels like. I bore your shame on the cross. Now see, that one idea is the key to deliverance for so many people from so many problems. But the problem is, it's a faith idea and it takes faith to experience it. What do I mean? If you have a problem you can't deal with and you have acknowledged your problem... 
you have got to see that Jesus took that problem on the cross into himself, experienced the pain of it, according to Isaiah 53, and experienced the punishment for it if there was any punishment due. That is the reality of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus didn't just die in your place. He died as you. He died with what you had as an ailment, and he took the pain, and he took the punishment for it. And if we can have that idea embedded in our hearts that everything we need we find in Jesus, that we have this opportunity to make this extreme exchange. <clears throat> he can give us his beauty for our ashes. He can give us the oil of joy for mourning. He can give us a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. My throat started tickling in mid-preach. <laughs> Why? It says, so that we be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for his glory, because <clears throat> he wants us so healed we can real rebuild old ruins. We can raise up former desolations. We can repair ruined cities. We can um, repair the desolations of many generations. The gospel is, is potent enough if we will simply embrace it to its profoundest depth that we can see generations. We can see what has happened to families that has taken generations of destruction. We can see them repaired and rebuilt. And it doesn't even says Jesus does that, although he does. It says they do that. Those people who have come into this kingdom and embraced the reality of, of Jesus and what it really means. Amen. I really like that. Okay. What does it look like when someone really believes the gospel of the kingdom? I've got five more minutes here. I think it will take five more minutes. The Old Testament story of Jacob gives us a living example. How many are familiar with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Those are our spiritual forebears. And every one of them was a pretty messed up person. Our spiritual fathers had a lot to answer for. Let's look at Jacob. His name means deceiver. When that's your name, well, what you can say, that's what his name means, deceiver. He was born a twin, and his brother was coming out of the womb first. Jacob reached out and grabbed him by the heel, I guess to bring him back so he could get out first and get the double portion. He took advantage of that older brother, whose name was Esau. He conned him out of his birthright. He deceived his father to steal Esau's blessing, which was the double portion of the inheritance. Jacob ran for his life. And lived with his uncle Laban because Esau was going to kill him for tricking him. His uncle Laban deceived Jacob. And then Jacob swindled his uncle Laban out of his livestock. Well, the way Laban deceived Jacob was he got him to work for seven years so he could marry Rachel. And then he switched in the honeymoon tent Leah for Rachel. And so he consummated the wedding with a woman he wasn't going to marry and woke up the next morning and realized, I'm just telling you what happened, ladies and gentlemen. 
And so Laban said, oh, well, see, Leah's the oldest. She has to get married first. Then you can have Rachel. You can have both of them if you work another seven years. So he worked 14 years. He had two wives and two concubines at the same time. Say at the same time. At the same time. Now, I'm just trying to tell you what Jacob was like. Is everybody okay? This is the forefather of our faith. Anybody in here who has an inferiority complex, after you hear about the story of Jacob, you are, you need to wake up. These guys were not in charge of a Sunday school picnic, I'm telling you. <laughs> he had two wives and two concubines and 12 sons out of that batch of mates, some of whom were murderers, adulterers, liars, con men and rapists. Now, what kind of life did, did Jacob had a rough life? Oh, then the other thing was, uh, after he swindled Laban out of all his livestock, he was going to go back and reconcile with, with, uh, with Esau. And, um, and so what he did was, he sent three batches of livestock ahead of him and then his family and then he came uh, I'm just telling you Jacob Jacob oh man <laughs> that was Jacob I'm just half through the mess he was in Joseph was his favorite son actually Joseph was his 11th son um, 10 of Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of a spiritual gift that he had. So 10 of his brothers sell their dad's favorite son into slavery and go home and lie to him, bringing his coat of many colors, which his dad had given him, that had blood on it and said, God, we don't know what happened to him. I guess a wild beast ate him. And so for 22 years, Jacob thought his favorite son was dead. Well, then Rachel, his favorite wife, died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So Jacob was brokenhearted for how many reasons, but particularly for the loss of his son Joseph. Then famine came and threatened to destroy his entire family. So he sent his 10 sons back to Egypt which was the only place that had any food. And lo and behold, they not only discovered that Joseph was alive, but he was in charge. And Joseph forgave them. And so Joseph's, how would you like to be Joseph's brother explaining that when you went back to dad? <laughs> Poor Jacob. So Joseph's brothers returned home to report to their dad, Jacob, the good news that Joseph was alive. And that brings us to Genesis 45. So I think I've got that ready for the overhead. Can everybody see that? So I've, I've told you all about Jacob to tell you what a train wreck he was, right? Everybody agree? He could earn nothing from God based on like one line of stuff I've read. And I've been reading it for almost 10 minutes. But here's what happened. Genesis 45:26, And this is a picture an Old Testament picture of what happens to somebody 
that really embraces this king and this kingdom and all of these benefits. And they told him, Jacob's son, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still. I've studied this. This is a central verse in my book, Harbinger of Hope. He could have had a heart attack. He could have fainted. Jacob's heart stood still. Why? What does it say? Because he did not believe them. We don't understand what happens when we really believe something. Believe something can, can, can change even our physical condition. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father did what? Revived. Now, we talk about revival. I've been through a bunch of them. Most of them have been pretty huge disappointments. Can I be that honest? But they've been legit. But the kind of reviving I see that Jesus is after is the kind where lives are so transformed and changed, we have the capacity to change our city, change our nature, change our culture, restore. Gosh, anyone in this room could have a lost legacy. Anyone in this room could have a lost legacy. Anyone in this room could have a secret legacy in the books of heaven that you don't even know anything about. And since you don't have a clue, and since you've been so beaten down, you wouldn't even consider what it is God has for your life. We talk about prophetic Where's the prophetic that can look at a person and tell them, this is what God really has for your life. You're not who you think you are. You're not even close. And I'm not saying you're worse than you think you are. I mean, you're better than you think you are. You have a calling beyond what you think you have a calling for. Anyway, that's part of what needs to happen. Okay, he saw the wagons also. Joseph had sent back. Ten donkeys full of food, ten donkeys full of the very best Egypt had to offer. So he has 20 donkeys completely loaded down with all the wealth and benefit of of Egypt. And then he sees these wagons that were going to take his entire family out of poverty and into a land of Goshen, which was the very best part of Egypt. And verse says, when he saw that and he believed it, The spirit of Jacob, say Jacob, please. Jacob, their father revived. Read verse 28. Then Israel said. Who's Israel? Israel's the real Jacob. Israel's the transformed man. Israel is the man who had the legacy that from his loins would come the Messiah whose life would touch every single family on the earth. That was his legacy. What did Israel say? It is enough. 
Do you know what it is enough does not mean? It does not mean it is enough. Here's what Israel said. This is more than I could have ever imagined. I don't know what you imagine for your life. I don't know what you think God thinks of you, wants for you, has for you. But whatever the most outrageous imagination you may have for your life, God has more than that. And this is a simple picture of a man whose broken heart got delivered of his unbelief. He believed the words of the one that they thought was dead, who was not only alive, but Lord of all Egypt. This is such a picture of the church. Right now the church is living like Jesus died and never rose from the dead. See, that's this picture. People in mourning, people that are heart sick, don't have to be heart sick. Why? Jesus is alive. Well, what does that mean? It means he'll help you any way you need help. You just need to believe. Oh, I've tried that. Well, try it again. Well, it doesn't work for me. Give it another shot. Try it till it works. It's the only answer we have. Hey, one of these days we're going to figure out Jesus really is the only solution we have. Try him. I, I, you know, I'm upset with the Lord sometimes. Anybody else upset with the Lord? My dad died at 62, and he went too soon, and he didn't talk to me much. And I got mad at the Lord the other day, and I said, you just like my dad. You, you don't talk to me enough, and you leave too soon. Can you talk to the Lord like that? That's not disrespectful. That's me trying to find a breakthrough with a God who cares about me, who knows I feel that way already. Gosh, okay. I saw, actually, I saw, I think Karen Woodfin put this up on Facebook or somewhere, but it was, it was a little, um, Jesus was on a park bench with this guy, and Jesus looked like the typical Anglo-Saxon white Protestant Jesus that he was not. <laughs> actually, I've never understood the, the Ku Klux Klan being calling themselves Christian and anti-Jewish because Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Anyway, he's talking on a park bench and he looks at this guy and he says, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. <laughs> here's the question and here's the challenge. What does it mean to follow Jesus, really follow Jesus? What does it mean to have a king? means everything you own is his. Your life is his. To the best of your ability, you're going to do everything he wants you to do. And, and you're going to embrace all the benefits of an Isaiah 61 good news. Beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning. I thought about heal the brokenhearted. You, you know Jacob had a broken heart. How does his brokenheartedness manifest? He couldn't believe. Because with the heart man, his believer was broken. And it was broken because he believed someone who was alive and well and in charge, he believed he was dead. See, that's an amazing discovery. That it's not what goes on that bothers you. It's what you think goes on. 
And when you think something a certain way, it affects you a certain way, and it can be absolutely diametrically opposed to reality. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to doubt your doubts and start believing your beliefs. All of us, me included. One of the things I recognized recently is I've allowed too much negativity into my life. How many of you can say that? How many of you want to repent from negativity? Well, let's do this. Maybe there's positivity for negativity. Lord, we ask. We have this negativity. We have this wrong perspective of reality, which is a delusion that makes us afraid or makes us depressed or makes us hopeless. When the reality is you are our king, you reign forever, you provide all that we need, you are the best thing that has ever happened to anyone ever. And when you rose from the dead, you said, hey, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So, Lord, we give to you our negativity. Heal our broken hearts, Lord, those hearts that don't believe. Oh, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.